Well, today in our conversation, we're going to talk about the subject that I'm calling legacy faith. I feel like we've been talking about legacy faith this whole series, but more uh, uh, directly, we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture in Luke chapter 9. And so if you have your Bibles, turn there now. Where Jesus has this, we're going to see this conversation about legacy faith. And in this, uh, I want you to think about your, maybe your own spiritual journey. So maybe just for starters, before we even dive into this conversation, I want you to think for a moment of your spiritual journey. And when you think about the process that maybe has led you to where you're at today, some of us have had a longer process than others. But when you think about this journey, this faith progression, this faith development that you've been on, maybe in, and maybe some of you are, you know, in the process of trying to determine whether or not Jesus was a son of God and should be a part of your life. Many of you, I know, have come to that place where you believe Jesus is a son of God, and now you're trying to, you know, build your life sort of on the, the principles of God's word. But again, when you think about that whole journey that you've been on, I wonder how much of your growth has been the result of what I'm calling a social transaction, a social transaction, meaning that other people have influenced what you think or believe about God. So when you go all the way back, like for me, example, uh, for example, my first decision to, to invite Jesus into my life was when I was five years old. Can you believe that? 56 years ago. Wow, that's a long time, you know. But it became as a result of, uh, of what someone said to me, a vacation Bible school teacher said to me about Jesus that made me realize, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. And that social impact influenced me. And so think about your own journey. Social tra- that's what I'm calling a social transaction. And then also at the same time, I want you to think about your, when you think about your faith development, how much of it has been the result of what I'm calling a personal transaction. Personal meaning uh, it's, it's come as a result of maybe your own personal uh, habits to read God's word or maybe to spend time praying. You know, every morning, uh, I rarely miss a morning where I'll wake up and, and I'll read the Bible and I'll spend time in prayer. That's part of my personal transaction that I'm having with God. And so when you think about your own journey, how much of it has been social transaction? Are you with me? And how much of it is personal, kind of the solo pursuit. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about. And I want you to kind of keep that, that, that balance in front of you as we read today's Bible story found in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. So let me find it here in my Bible. I'm going to be reading, as always, I like the New Living Translation. That's kind of the translation I've been using the last decade or so. And uh, so I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation. And we're going to start reading today in verse uh, 18. So Luke chapter 9, whether you have it in paper or digital form on your, on your phone, like Beto earlier read, Let's start reading at verse 18. And as always, try to picture the scene in your mind. Try to put yourself in the context of what we're, what we're seeing here. Okay, Luke chapter 9, verse 18. <clears throat> One day, Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. So here we see what kind of a transaction? A personal transaction, right? He's going to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him. Well, wait a second. Now we're seeing what kind of a transaction? A social transaction. So Jesus is going to go pray alone, and yet who's he got with him? 
his buddies, his, his closest friends, right? His, his small group Bible study. So Jesus relieves the crowds to go to pray alone, only his disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do people say that I am? Interesting question. Who do people say that I am? Verse 19. Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. And others say you are one of the ancient prophets risen from the dead. Let's stop there for a second. If I were to ask you who Jesus Christ is, who he was, do you have an opinion? I suspect that if you went down to Huntington Beach today, which is generally full of people, right, on a Sunday, and if you were to just kind of randomly talk to people on the beach or go down Main Street and randomly talk to people and ask them the question, who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? How many of you think you would get the very same answer from everybody? Anybody? How many of you think you would get a variety of opinions? Yeah, me too. Who do people, who is Jesus Christ? I have a hunch that the people in Huntington Beach are probably a whole lot like the people in Jesus' day who had various opinions about who Jesus is. Well, here in verse 18 in our Bible story, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Again, notice the difference of responses that Jesus' disciples receive. Well, the disciples respond, some say that you're John the Baptist. Y'all remember who John the Baptist was? John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist was about six months older than Jesus. He lived this ascetic, uh, kind of hermit lifestyle. The Bible tells us that he ate bugs and honey and he wore uh, hair or clothes made of what? Camel hair, right? <clears throat> he lived in the wilderness. And a big part of John's preaching ministry involved challenging people to repent of their sins, right? Right? And one of the things that John would do in connection with, with the challenging people to repent of their sins is he would baptize them with water where? Anybody remember? In the Jordan River. John was what we would call a salty preacher. If you read the gospel, let me make sure I get it right here. Uh, I think it's in Mark. I have it written down here somewhere. I don't know where it's at. It's in my notes. I've already gone rogue off of my notes. John was the guy who, who confronted King Herod about a relationship, an adulterous relationship that King Herod had with his sister-in-law, his brother's wife. Well, King Herod, as you would imagine, he's a king. He's not used to have people calling him out. And so he was upset by that, especially his mistress. His sister-in-law was upset by that. And what happened as a result? They cut John's head off. That's a nasty kind of way to die, wouldn't you agree? So John is a salty preacher. Well, we also know that Jesus had a bit of salt in his words. You know, if you read the gospel of Matthew chapter 23, you might remember that there's a sermon that Jesus preached called the, the Sermon of the Seven Woes, where basically he calls out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the religious teachers of that day. And Jesus begins with, with these words. Let me just get them right to you. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you serpents, brood of vipers. 
tell me that's not a little bit of fire and brimstone to your preaching. And so like John, Jesus had a bit of, of, of spunk to his, his preaching. And so when he arrived on the scene, some people thought that Jesus was John the Baptist reincarnated, resurrected. And we can read in the Gospel of Mark chapter 6 that even King Herod, who had had him beheaded, thought, is Jesus John? Has John come back to life? I took the guy's head off. How can that be? Who do people say that I am? Jesus asked. Well, some say you're John the Baptist, resurrected. Some say that you're Elijah. Do y'all remember who Elijah was? Elijah... <clears throat> lived 900 years earlier. He was what we would call a major prophet. He was a big leagues prophet. He was a guy who God had supernaturally empowered with spiritual authority to do amazing miracles. In 1 Kings chapter 17, we can read, for example, how Elijah, through the power of God, raised a widow's son from the dead. Well, Jesus raised the widow's son from the bed. Remember the story of the, the widow coming out of the town of Nain and Jesus went up and touched the coffin and, and raised that boy from the dead. Several times, Jesus raised people from the dead. In 1 Kings chapter 17, we can read how the prophet Elijah prayed that the rain would stop. S-T-O-P, stop. And for three years, it did not rain in the land. Until what? Until Elijah prayed again and asked God to return the rain, to rescind the rain. And what happened? It rained. So Elijah, through the power of God, illustrated this supernatural power over natural, kind of what we would call natural forces. Jesus comes along, and what's Jesus illustrate? He illustrates the same thing, right? There's, remember when he walked, the Bible talks about how he walked on water or among the disciples, how he gave a, spoke a word and the wind and the waves, you know, went calm. Could this be Elijah? Now, why would people think Elijah? Well, to answer that question, you got to read the book of Malachi. If you read the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, you can look at it if you want to. Malachi, the last two verses in the Old Testament, the last two verses in the Old Testament portion of the Bible, Malachi preaches this. He says, before the day of judgment comes, Elijah will return. Now suddenly Jesus is coming along. And they're asking the question, could Elijah, could this be Elijah? Is the day of judgment upon us? You know, still today in modern day, I don't know if you guys realize this or not. Some of you might. You know that if you're a Jew and you, pass, you celebrate the Passover meal, which we typically celebrate around Easter time, and you're at the dinner table with your family enjoying the Passover meal, do you know that a, a Jew will have an empty chair at the table that no one will sit in? You know who that chair is for? It's for Elijah. The people are waiting for Elijah come, to come back before the judgment day when God establishes his heavenly throne. And so when and Jesus arrives on this scene and he starts to talk about heaven and hell, people wonder, could Jesus be the prophet Elijah who has returned to usher in judgment day? 
Who do people say that I am? Jesus asks. Some say you're John the Baptist. The disciples respond. Some say you're Elijah. Others say you're one of the ancient prophets risen from the dead. And what I want you to capture in this is the Bible illustrates for us and reinforces for us the truth that the people in Jesus' day are a whole lot like the people in your and my day. They had opinions about who Jesus might be. Now in your app notes, see if I can grab mine. Grab your app notes if you, if you haven't already. So in our Palm Harvest, we have this Palm Harvest app, as many of you know, that you can download if you have an Apple uh, phone, you know, iPhone, you get it at the Apple store. If you have an Android, you go to Google store. And if you, I want you to specifically today, if you haven't already, pull up the app. Let me find my Palm Harvest app here. And at the bottom of, again, I've, I've, I've walked us through this before, but let me just do it again. At the very bottom, you'll see these tabs. And if you push on the Sunday tab, and then you go up here to the weekly sermons, which is the second one down, just click on that you'll see all the sermon series that we've been doing this year. At the very top is the Legacy Series, which is where we're at today. Click on that. And then at the very top, you'll see our sermon notes for today. It says Legacy Faith. Click on that. And you'll have the outline. Now, in the outline, if you go, and by the way, if you're ever traveling or anything, you'll see that little, you know, that little uh, play button, that's our YouTube play button. So if you push that right now, you're gonna make sure your volume's on, on, on mute because this service that we're broadcasting live is happening right now on this app. You can watch this app wherever you're, the service wherever you're being. But here's what I want you to notice. In your notes, I asked several questions. And the first question I asked, if you see it there, is, is discovering Jesus, is discovering Jesus a social transaction or a personal transaction? Is the process of trying to just know who Jesus is, is that a social transaction or is it a personal transaction? How many of you think it's a social transaction? How many of you think it's a personal transaction? How many of you think it's both? I think it's both, okay? So my answer is both. The very fact that you and I are here today studying the Bible in community and discovering the truth about Jesus I think is both a social and it's a personal journey. Now notice again, what question does Jesus ask next? Look at verse 20. Verse 20. But then Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter responds, what's he say? You're the Messiah sent from God. You're the Messiah. In Hebrew, the translation is you are the anointed one, the smeared one. You know, in biblical times, whenever a king would be promoted to the throne, he would be smeared. He would be anointed with oil. So when Peter declares, Jesus, you're the Messiah sent from God, you are the anointed one whom the prophets have told us one day would come, it reveals here too that Peter also had an opinion about who Jesus is. 
But the bigger question, brothers and sisters, is who do you say that Jesus is? Do you have an opinion? What say you, Palm Harvest? Turn to your neighbor and ask them this question, what say you? And if you want to do it with a pirate jargon, what say you? What say you? So again, look in your, your, your app notes. Jesus is asking the question, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? And so my next question is, is pursuing Jesus, is the pursuit of Jesus a social transaction? Or is it a personal one? You know, I've already proposed my conviction that discovering Jesus involves both a social and personal transaction. But what about pursuing Jesus to know Jesus better? Is that a group? Is that a social transaction? Or is it a personal process? What do you think? Like many of you, I too think it is both. By the way, does it verse, is it already up there? Is it telling you? Both. It's both. I propose that like the process of discovering Jesus, pursuing Jesus with intentionality, like what we and you and I are doing today, involves both. It's a social transaction and it's a personal transaction, which is why we involve ourselves in Bible studies, right? It's why we listen to podcasts, sometimes in a group, sometimes personal. Pursuing Jesus is both. Go down to the next question now. Now we're getting, diving a little bit deeper. How about choosing Jesus? Choosing to follow Jesus. Choosing to put one's faith in Jesus. Does that demand a social transaction or a personal one? What do you think? Do you have an opinion? What say you? Friends, I submit that choosing Jesus is a personal decision. I cannot choose Jesus for you. You cannot choose Jesus for me. When it comes to choosing Jesus, only you can choose Jesus for yourself. Only I can choose Jesus for myself. Now we can encourage each other to place our faith in him. You know, as parents, we can bring our kids to church, right? And we can place them in a a place where they can be exposed to the truths about God. But when it comes to the end of the day, only your child can make that decision for themselves, right? Right? We can offer compelling arguments to one another for why a person should trust Jesus as their Savior and Lord. But when it comes to making an eternal decision about whether to follow Jesus, I submit that that is a personal transaction. There will be a day, friends, when you and I stand before God and he's going to ask the question, why should I let you into my heaven? He's not going to go to my wife and say, hey, Robin, why should I let Mike into heaven? No, that's not, that's not the time. Now it's my time with God. Now it's your time. And God is, while he is concerned about your opinion about whether I should be in heaven or not, he wants to know what's my decision. And you know the only answer is right, what it is, right? It's, it's I'm with Jesus. 
Right? I made a decision to, to put my faith in Jesus. I'm with him, God, and he's gonna go, okay, you're in, good. Because that's the one opinion God the Father does care about, Jesus, his son. It's a personal decision. So when you stand before heaven's gate, if you haven't made that decision yet about whether you want to invite Jesus Christ to not only forgive your sins, which is the Savior part, and the Lord part, which is saying, God, I want you to lead in my life, you better do it now because you're going to have to stand, and I will too, and face judgment day. Which is why I think Jesus asked his disciples the question, who do you say that I am? Because choosing Jesus demands a personal transaction. And Jesus, I think, seems to be suggesting here that the Christian faith really goes beyond what other people believe. We each individually must make a decision about Jesus. Who do you say that Jesus is? What say you? Look again. Let's go back to verse 18. One day Jesus calls together his 12, oh, wrong passage. One day Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him and he asked him, who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. And others say you're the one of the ancient prophets risen from the dead. Then he asked him, but who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you're the Messiah sent from God. Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone who he was. Wait, what? Did I read that right? Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone who he was. Paul Marvin's church, why would Jesus ask his disciples to stay quiet? Aren't we as followers of Jesus supposed to tell people about him? Aren't we supposed to share the good news about Jesus' love for sinners like me and you. So why would Jesus tell, people, tell his disciples to stay quiet? Why doesn't Jesus you know, want people to discover an identity, Jesus' true identity? Why not make that public? Why not declare that Jesus, the promised king, is now on scene? Why would Jesus not want his disciples to share this amazing revelation? Do you know the answer? What kind of Messiah was the Jewish nation looking for at this time in history? I'll tell you what kind of Messiah they weren't looking for. They weren't looking for a king who they could serve. They weren't looking for a king who was humble and subservient. The people of Israel, the people of that day, wanted their Messiah to be a conquering king, didn't they? They wanted a political king who would overthrow the existing Roman government who at the time was calling the shots. The people of Israel wanted to be top dog. The people of Israel wanted to be at the front of the line. And this desire of the people's heart was a generational desire. This longing for a ruling, powerful king was birthed in their hearts by their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents and the entire family line of people that preceded even them. 
Jesus knew that if the news got out that the Messiah was now on scene, that the people would push him to take a seat on the throne. Now let there be no misunderstanding. Jesus' kingdom does involve a heavenly throne. Jesus' kingdom does involve a throne room where there's going to be lots of servants who will heed his every command. But at this moment in our Bible story, Jesus knew that until the people's hearts were in the right place, until their motives were exposed and purified, they would never be ready for the Messiah to sit on the throne. Particularly, don't miss this, the throne of their own heart, the throne of their own mind. Jesus knew that the people's hope for a Messiah was selfish. And I wonder how much our heart and our motives are just the same as they were. Jesus, what are you going to do for me today? Right? Jesus, how are you going to meet my needs and my wants and my desires? Like a genie in a bottle who grants me my wishes. I pray God and you do what? You answer. And the hard part is when the answers take two decades. And by the way, you know, our citizenship isn't here in the U.S. Our citizenship is ultimately where? It's in heaven. The Bible tells us that we're all just strangers in this world. And sometimes we, even when we do the right things, you know, we, we work hard, we come into a country. My parents were, my grandparents were immigrants into this country. They went through the process of getting the citizenship. I just happened to be born into this country. And for those like Elena and Beto who are coming into our country and they're going through the process of trying to do the right thing, sometimes it just takes, it just takes time. But I just want to say to you, not to discourage you, and I'm celebrating the fingerprint thing. You know, our citizenship is ultimately there. But Jesus knew that the people are a lot like you and me, that I pray and I expect God to kind of answer, right? Am I alone on that? You know, years before Jesus ever arrived on the scene, let me see if I can find it here. There was a prophet by the name of Amos. Amos is what we would call a minor prophet, but he was still a prophet. And the reason why it's a minor prophet is if you go to the book of Amos in the Old Testament, uh, there's only like a, a few chapters. But Amos was a farmer. He was a sycamore fig farmer. He was a, he was a shepherd. And out of this livelihood as a farmer, God called him to become a preacher, a prophet to, to the people of, of Israel. And in the book that bears his name, in Amos chapter 5, let me see if I can find it. If you want to follow there with me, you can. In verse 21, let me read a couple of verses. This is what God says. In Amos chapter 5, verse 21, through the prophet Amos, he says this. I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to your music of the harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice 
an endless river of righteous living. Church, in biblical days, the nation of Israel had gotten lazy in their faith. Their commitment to God was part-time. It was laissez-faire. The people of Israel, now don't miss this, they practiced all the church activities, religiously, but their hearts weren't in it. They did all the right things, but with the wrong motives. And so this preaching prophet Amos here pronounces this message that still, I think, still rings true to this day. Friends, God does not want our religious festivals or our solemn assemblies if our hearts are not transparent. If our motives are somehow impure. If our lives are ethically and morally bankrupt. Amos preached that God is not pleased with the songs that we sing or the offerings that we bring. If our motives for giving both song and money are selfish. God, I give you this so that you will give me that, right? God, I offer my stuff hoping and secretly expecting that you will return the favor more. You'll give me more. You ever had those kind of thoughts? No, it's confusing because God says, listen, if I, I'm gonna trust and trust to those who are faithful. So I trust if you're faithful with a little, I'm gonna give you more, right? So there's this, this weird tension. If, if you can be, show me you're, you're illustrating some obedience with, with this and it's a little bit, then I'll give you more. But we always have to have that attitude check. What's my motive? So let's land the plane. Go back to Luke chapter nine. Luke chapter nine, look at verse 23. Notice what Jesus says. Luke chapter nine, verse 23. So then Jesus says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. Verse 25. And what you do benefit if you, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but yourself are lost or destroyed. What do you gain if you gain the whole world, but if you yourself are lost or destroyed? Translation, let's end on this. Jesus wants our heart. Jesus wants your heart. He wants my heart, which is why he asks this question, who do you say that I am? Which brings us to this idea of legacy faith. You know, this series that we are on, sort of the big theme of this, this, this series has to do with how do I live my life in a way that has lasting generational impact? And I think what Jesus is telling us here in this passage and illustrating is that the launch pad for a generational impact begins in my own heart, in my own mind before it can have any kind of social generational impact later. Brothers and sisters, legacy faith, legacy influence is a personal transaction. What do you say who Jesus is? So in closing, in your app notes, I've listed three legacy questions that I encourage you to ponder this today and maybe this week. Okay, look at them real quick. 
Three legacy questions at the bottom of your app. Number one, what life priorities threaten to push Jesus out of your life? When you evaluate kind of your daily activities, what do those activities threaten to push Jesus out of your life? You know, my Bible study, we talk about, you know, uh, that a lot of us years ago, those of us who are new to the faith love sports, and we would wake up in the morning and we'd read the sports section, the box scores, if you will. And the challenge was, Kirk and I talk about this all the time, the challenge was, no, we're going to read our Bible first before I open the, 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 you know, the uh, Wall Street Journal, right? I'm going I'm to read God's Bible first before I check my Facebook page or check out what's going on in the news. What's happening? Did they find the Titan sub? Important. But first, I'm going to read God's word. So you have to ask yourself the question, what life priorities threaten to push Jesus out of my life? And then number two, what competes for my heart's attention? My kids do. Your family does. I love my work. You know, I was telling Kirk and Denise, can you believe that we've been, this just hit me in a, a new way this week. 25 years I've almost been at this church. And I just felt this incredible joy in my heart. But I have to confess that this church ministry competes for my attention. Maybe your work does too for you. What competes for your heart's attention? And then the most important question, question number three, which is what Jesus is really asking here in this story is, have you given your heart to Jesus? Have you given your heart to Jesus? So let's close with a final prayer. And I'm going to pray two kind of balancing prayers. The first prayer is this. If you have never trusted Jesus with your life, if you've never asked Jesus to forgive your sins and begin to work in your life in a way that makes help you become the person who he's created you to be, that I would encourage you, even in this first prayer, and I'm going to say this first line, and it's going to make sense. Let that be your prayer. to Say, Jesus, I choose you. And then the second part of our prayer, we're going to pray that just God increases our capacity to grow, okay? So put your palms out in front of you if you haven't already. As David comes up, we're going to close the service. Palms up. Deep breath in. Just inhale and just say, Holy Spirit, come and fill me up right now, again. And as you exhale, pray this in your heart. Say, Jesus, I choose you. Jesus, I choose you. So please help me to grow in my understanding of who you are. Please help me to grow in my understanding of who you are. This is my legacy prayer today. Amen and amen and amen. What say you? What say you? If you enjoyed this video, I invite you to like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Also, drop me a comment down below. I'd love to hear from you.